The four horsewomen of our political apocalypse, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and Ayanna Presley have given themselves a new nickname. We will examine our national suicide squad and the misguided conservatives who are defending them. Then, more men beat women at women's sports, go figure. Joe Biden's campaign keeps going nowhere. And Al Green, the congressman, not the singer, proposes a convenient strategy to redeem America for her original sin. All that and more. I'm Michael Knowles, and this is The Michael Knowles Show. The squad is here. We will examine that suicide squad, that national suicide squad. But first, today's show is brought to you by our friends at Wesley Financial Group, the company that is helping a lot of people out there who believed those timeshare lies. I actually have relatives who have done this. If you bought a timeshare, you know the pitch. Oh, it's a great investment. It's a legacy for the kids. You can stay whenever you want, wherever you want, except the only problem with that is it's a total pack of lies. The ugly truth is with a timeshare. You can never tell how much it's really going to cost or when it's going to end. Many owners trying to sell their timeshares online find out the hard way. It's not an investment when they can't get a dollar for it. And with those rising annual maintenance and assessment fees, buying a timeshare is like giving the timeshare company a blank check for life. I've had relatives who have gotten sucked in by these things, and some of them have had a lot of trouble getting out. If you're stuck in a timeshare nightmare, go uh, to icanceltimeshare.com. Tell them that I sent you. Wesley Financial guarantees they will legally get you out of your timeshare contract permanently or you pay nothing. You've got nothing to lose. You've got a whole lot to gain. Get your free information telling you all about how it works. Go to iCancelTimeshare.com. Couldn't be easier than that. iCancelTimeshare.com. Check it out. Stop pouring money down to the drain to those timeshare scammers. Who is the squad? Do you know who the squad is? Ayanna Presley, who is one member of the squad, has given them that definition. It's AOC, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, and Ayanna Presley. Here is Presley giving them the nickname at a press conference yesterday. Our squad is big. Our squad includes any person committed to building a more equitable and just world. That's the squad. Squad can be anybody, but really it's just those four people. And uh, Guy Benson and uh, my pal John Hershauer over at National Review gave Ayanna Presley, that woman, the nickname Ringo. She's the Ringo of the squad. And it occurred to me that the whole squad really does have a lot of parallels with the Beatles because you've got AOC, who's obviously Paul. She's the marketable one. She's the pop one. You've got Ilhan Omar. She's John. She's the radical. She's got a pretty weird marital history. Then you've got Rashida Tlaib. She's the spiritual one. She's George. You know, she just meditates on calming feelings, in her case, about the Holocaust. Obviously, in, in George Harrison's case, it was about sort of nicer things than that. And then you've got Ayanna Presley, who is Ringo without the likability. This is our squad. And President Trump has put all the pressure back on the squad. He's put all the pressure back on Democrats to defend the squad. Late night talk show hosts are loving the squad. Here is Stephen Colbert defending them against that mean old Donald Trump. Trump, uh, of course, Trump does not like the squad. He is the leader of the rival gang, the Klan. Wow. Wow, that is so brave. A late night comedian calling President Trump a racist. I would say 
It's not just brave. It's really creative. Obviously, I've never heard it before. It's really funny. I can't stop laughing. I've doubled over, as you can see. And, but it, more than anything, I guess, it's just so courageous to say that in our culture. And it's not just late night comedians who are doing, even random left-wing talking heads are summoning the courage somehow to go on leftist news channels, mainstream television, and call Donald Trump a racist. If you're supporting Trump, you are a racist at this point. I'm not afraid to say it and no one should be. I just, I, I was so afraid to say it because no one's saying that out there. Nobody in the mainstream media or the newspapers or television or Hollywood or the entire left half of American politics or basically anyone in the culture at any time has actually had the courage to say Donald Trump is a racist, except for that guy, that random talking head on MSNBC and Stephen Colbert. They have just summoned such, such courage. On the question of racism, even on the question of radicalism more generally, it might be helpful to compare President Trump to the squad. Because here's how it seems to me. It seems to me that for the last three years, the left has accused Donald Trump of supporting racists and neo-Nazis and white nationalists and use whatever term you want. And so they've said, hey, Donald Trump, you need to condemn white nationalists and bigots. And then Donald Trump has basically said, okay, I totally condemn bigots. Here he is. Racism is evil, and those who cause violence in its name are criminals and thugs, including the KKK, neo-Nazis, white supremacists, and other hate groups that are repugnant to everything we hold dear as Americans. And I'm not talking about the neo-Nazis and the white nationalists, because they should be condemned totally. We are a nation founded on the truth that all of us are created equal. We are equal in the eyes of our Creator. We are equal under the law. And we are equal under our Constitution. Those who spread violence in the name of bigotry strike at the very core of America. How many times do I have to reject? I've rejected David Duke, rejected David Duke. Uh, I've rejected the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan. From the time I'm five years old, I rejected them. I put it on Twitter last week. Now, I have been asked this question so many times. I have rejected it so many times. It seems pretty clear he's rejected the racists and the bigots and the white nationalists and the neo-nazis. It seems pretty clear, to me at least, maybe to you. The only people that it's not clear to are the people who are willfully ignoring Trump's repeated, for years and years and years, condemnation of racial bigots. They just don't want it to be the case that President Trump has condemned racial bigots because then that gets in the way of their narrative. But let's apply this same test to the left. What happens when the right asks the left to condemn their kooks and their bigots? President Trump did it forcefully. He's done it totally. He's done it repeatedly. Now watch what happens when the right asks the squad to condemn kooks, bigots, and even terrorists. Hi, really simple question. Will you condemn Antifa for attacking an ICE facility? It's very simple. Will you tell Americans not to attack violently ICE facilities? Just say no. It would be a very simple thing to say, and it would go a long way to tell Americans that you're not sympathetic to Antifa. Thank you. 
Are you sympathetic to Antifa? Just say no. He's giving her the answer. Just say no. That's Ayanna Presley, the Ringo of the squad, walking down the halls of Congress. And, and this is not a hypothetical question. It's not, do you condemn some hypothetical acts of left-wing terrorism? Just three days ago, there was a left-wing terrorist, Antifa guy, shows up with a rifle and explosives to a border protection facility, an ICE facility. Fortunately, he was taken out before he could commit the terrorist attack. But we, if, if not for law enforcement, there would have been that terrorist attack. And this right-wing journalist says, hey, just double-checking because you've said some pretty weird stuff. Do you, squad, do you, Ayanna Presley, condemn left-wing terrorism? Not an acknowledgement that that guy asked the question. She just keeps looking ahead. She can't give the answer. Imagine if the tables were turned. Imagine if a left-wing journalist were asking that of President Trump. Let's say that there were a, a right-wing terrorist attack. Let's say it weren't even right-wing, but it were some white racist guy, and they lump him in with the right-wing. And they say, President Trump, do you condemn this terrorist attack? And he just walked down the hallway. He just walked right past them in the Rose Guard, didn't say anything. Right one foot away from them, just looked straight ahead. And then his handlers say, oh no, we're done here. We're, he's not going to answer that question. Imagine the coverage that that would be getting in the mainstream media. Imagine what the New York Times would say. Imagine what all the left-wing members of Congress would say. You have an exact parallel here, an actual leftist terrorist attack from Antifa. The guy says, hey, just really quick, you condemn this, right? She can't say it. But you know what? I bet what the left will say here is that wasn't a real press conference. That was guerrilla journalism. It was some right-wing provocateur walking down the hallway with her. She has no accountability. She has no responsibility to answer his questions. He's got to save those questions for a real press conference. Okay. So yesterday, the squad holds this press conference, AOC, Tlaib, Omar, and Presley. They're standing there at this press conference, and one of the credentialed journalists at the press conference that the squad has called asks Ilhan Omar to clarify her comments about Al-Qaeda, because previously we'd seen her giggling about Al-Qaeda. So they just wanted to make sure, hey, Ilhan Omar, look, people are accusing you, people like that awful Donald Trump are accusing you of having sympathies with Al-Qaeda, but you... You condemn Al-Qaeda, right? Right? Don't you, Ilhan Omar? Can you respond to some of the president's specific claims, most notably that you're a communist and that you're pro-Al-Qaeda? You might have noticed how when he said, go back to where you came from, there was an uproar um, through the... Um, through all of our communities, because every single person who's brown and black at some point in their life in this country heard that. Now, when he made the comment, uh, I know that every single Muslim who has lived in this country and across the world has heard that comment. And so I will not dignify it with an answer. What? Hey, Ilhan Omar, do you condemn Al-Qaeda? Uh, humana, humana, humana. I, uh, I, um, uh, I, I won't, uh, hmm, well, I won't, I won't dignify it with a response. Yeah, that's the ticket. Compare that. Hey, President Trump, do you condemn white nationalists? Yep, totally condemn them. Hey, Ilhan Omar, do you condemn Al-Qaeda, which you've giggled about before? I don't want to dignify that with a response. 
That's pretty weird. That's a weird answer. It's not like Ilhan Omar hasn't talked about Al-Qaeda before. She has. It's just when she has, she's giggled about it. We'll get to that in a second. We'll get to the misguided conservatives who are defending them. But first, if you are like me, and I know you are in, in many important ways, I am on the internet all the time and so are you. That means that our precious, precious, sweet data are out there for big tech companies and hackers to suck up. This is why I recommend getting the software that I trust to protect my online activity, ExpressVPN. Their apps use powerful encryption to secure your data. I know what you think. You think, I don't need that. Oh, who cares? Nobody wants my data. Listen, Buster, I know that you look at some pretty weird stuff on the internet. You know what I'm talking about? Those websites, you go into the incognito window to look up. You know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about dailywire.com. I'm talking about the Michael Knowles show. Weird stuff. These days, that could probably get you fired from your job. It could probably get you (laughs) kicked out of polite society. Get ExpressVPN. It runs in the background of your computer or phone, and then you use the internet just like you normally would. You don't even really notice it. You download the app, you click to connect, voila, you are protected. I never go online without ExpressVPN. You should not either. Seriously, guys, it costs less than seven bucks a month, comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no reason not to try it. The, I, I get why you won't try it, I, I get, or I get the temptation. You say, I don't really care about my data. I'm too lazy. I'm too cheap. Less than seven bucks a month. The catastrophe of identity theft, the, the catastrophe of having your data leaked, it's, guys, it's not worth it. Seriously, take five seconds. Go get ExpressVPN, cutting-edge technology called Trusted Server. You will make sure that there are no logs of what you do online. Go ahead. Do whatever you want to do. It's time to stop the hackers, big tech companies, and Big Brother from grabbing all your data. Take it back with ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today. Find out how you can get three months free at ExpressVPN dot com slash Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash Michael for three months free with a one-year package. ExpressVPN.com slash Michael to learn more. So it's not like Ilhan Omar hasn't talked about Al-Qaeda before. Now she's saying she won't dignify it with a response. She's talked about Al-Qaeda at length on camera. The difference is when she's talked about it on camera, when she's comfortable talking about Al-Qaeda, she's not condemning Al-Qaeda, she's giggling about it. And so it was, it was the, the thing that was interesting in the class was every time the, the, the professor said Al-Qaeda, he sort of like his shoulders yeah. went up and, you know. Yeah, he's in command like, here. Al-Qaeda, you know, hospital. He's an expert. Was, <laughs> you don't say America with an yeah. intensity. You yeah. don't say England with yeah. an intensity. Yeah. You know, you don't, you don't say um, the army with an intensity. Qaeda. <laughs> But you say these these names because you you want that that word to carry weight. Right. So she's willing to talk about Al-Qaeda at length so long as she can giggle about it and so long as she can draw a moral equivalence between Al-Qaeda and the United States and the U.S. Army and England. Then she can talk about Al-Qaeda and she's all smiles. But when someone watches that and says, gosh, are you... Are you seriously drawing a moral equivalence between Al-Qaeda and the United States? Are you, are you giggling about it? Do you have some kind of sympathy for Al-Qaeda? Then she says, I won't dignify that with a response. These are terrible people. The squad, they are terrible, terrible people. They champion terrorists. They literally champion terrorists. Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, I mean, even uh, Ayanna Pressley won't even uh, answer the question about Antifa walking down the street. These are members of Congress who have asked for leniency for uh, terrorists who have tried to go and join ISIS. 
These are bad people. They champion vile ideologies. They openly revile our country. They compare the country to Nazi Germany. These are terrible people. And this brings me to my message for conservatives. If you are defending the squad, you are the problem. There is a real sense out there that some conservatives give greater benefit of the doubt, greater grace to the squad than to President Trump. There is a real sense out there that in an effort to seem broad-minded and liberal and understanding and modern, that some conservatives give greater deference to people who openly despise this country than to people who love this country. Specifically on the immigration question, there is a sense out there that some conservatives give greater deference, give greater grace to people who we have allowed to come into this country than to native-born Americans. And this brings me to a piece that was in National Review yesterday. Just yesterday, David French summed up this last point in the National Review. And I should point out, anytime you bring up David in the era of the conservative debates and David Frenchism, you have to point out whether you like David or don't like David. (laughs) And I do. I like the guy. You know, in some quarters these days, French is a bad word. I guess actually French is always a bad word, but but David French specifically has become a bad term. And uh, I I like David French. I respect what he's done in his career. I uh, respect much of what he has to say. But he is dead wrong here. Here is what he said. It was in a piece called native-born ingrates. Gives you a sense of where this is going. David lays out the case for why we should basically prefer immigrants to native-born Americans, for why immigrants basically are better than native-born Americans. Now, I think they've actually changed the title on this piece. I don't know if it's that was just some editorial decision to elucidate what it was saying or because there was blowback. I think the new headline is Trump's tweets were malicious and Republican silence is deafening, regardless of what the title is at the moment. He opens the piece by calling President Trump a racist for his 2016 comments about that judge of Mexican descent. He says, the fact that Trump said he couldn't get a fair shake from this judge because he was of Mexican descent is evidence that Trump is a vile racist. David French never points out here that the judge that President Trump was talking about is a member of a racist organization called the San Diego La Raza Lawyers Association. La Raza meaning the race coming from a 1920s Mexican essay called La Raza Cosmica, which says that Hispanics are racially superior to every other race. Doesn't mention that. When you have that context, I I think it uh, at least gives President Trump a little bit of cover here. He's not saying all Mexicans are evil, no Mexican could give me a fair shake, but that judge in particular, not just by virtue of his heritage, of course, but by virtue of his association in a racist organization, maybe won't give him a fair shake on the question of illegal immigration. Doesn't doesn't, uh, mention that. Then David attacks President Trump for dodging the draft. This is what he writes, quote, there is something especially gross about a man who was too timid even to face the draft during his own generation's war, now presuming to define how Americans seek to reform their government. He is the last person to be the arbiter of patriotism or national loyalty. Now, my problem with this line is not that David's hitting French for, or that David is hitting Trump for dodging the draft. Fair enough hit if you want to do it. A lot of people in Trump's generation dodged the draft, but perfectly fair attack to go after him for that. 
My issue is that he describes the squad as Americans seeking to reform their own government. Is that, that's really how we're going to define these people? Not terrorist apologists, not bitter anti-Americans who equate their country with Nazi Germany. That's not the defining feature. It's just Americans who seek to reform their government. There's no difference between Ilhan Omar and, say, Dan Crenshaw. There's no difference between Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, AOC, and your conservative activist in the street, the, the tax reform guys. There's no difference. I think there is a difference. And I think it's the particular wickedness of the ideologies and, and the criminals that are, are being defended by the squad that, that makes that distinction. Then David gets to the main thrust of his argument. Quote, I believe Ilhan Omar is a toxic presence in American politics. Okay, so far we agree. Her critiques are deeply misguided, but she should temper her critiques because they're wrong, not because she's an immigrant. The blessings of liberty accrue to all Americans, including immigrants. And while all Americans should be deeply grateful for their freedoms and for American opportunity, it's a simple fact that immigrant citizens have actually done something to earn their status. They've often migrated here at great personal cost, learned a new language, built a life in a new land, passed a test most Americans can't pass, and then swore an oath that most Americans have never sworn. By contrast, what must natural-born citizens do to earn their citizenship? Survive labor and delivery. That's it. If anything, natural-born citizens should exercise the most gratitude. What did we do to earn our liberty? This is profoundly wrong, but it does express a certain view that has become popular on the right. This view, the immigrants, they're better than us. We're terrible. We're, we're the worst people on earth. We Americans, we've caused all the problems in the world. Everyone else is better than us. That's, that's not exactly what David's saying, but that's the sense I think that's being conveyed. The point he's making is that immigrants don't really owe a special debt of gratitude to this country. If anything, the native-born Americans do. Completely wrong. Immigrants owe a special debt of gratitude. This was true when my immigrant ancestors came here, and it is true today. Charlie Cook, actually, at National Review, made this, this very point in a response column. Immigrants do owe a very special debt of gratitude. America is a country. America is a country that is founded in part on ideas, but America is not just an idea. It's not just an abstraction floating somewhere in the atmosphere, pervading the entire world. It's a country. America has laws, America has traditions, and America has citizens who are more entitled to America than anyone else. Not everybody is entitled to America. Her citizens are. Some people in the world are Americans. Some people are not. Not everyone is entitled to America. We have the most generous immigration system in the world. Most people have no idea how generous it is. We take in well over a million people a year, legally through immigration. That's in addition to, what, another million people we take illegally? We've got 3,000 people per day pouring into this country. There's no second place. We take in so many people per year. That number has skyrocketed, by the way, since the 1960s when Democrats, following the leadership of Ted Kennedy, changed our immigration laws. We now have the highest foreign-born percentage of the population that we've had since the 1890s. Pretty generous. Maybe a thank you to native-born Americans is in order. 
We don't need to take in all of those immigrants. It's our country. We can do whatever we want with it. Every other country gets to decide who comes in. And guess what? All those other countries take in barely any immigrants. Germany is number two, and they take in a, a fraction of what we take in. Virtually every other country just d- doesn't take that many people. We choose to take those people in. They should be exceedingly grateful. I expect a thank you note. <laughs> Part of David's mistake is that he abstracts America out of existence. When my, I guess it would be my great-grandfather, came here from Italy, he kissed the ground that everyone was walking on. He loved this country. My Italian ancestors, you know, half of my family came here basically on the Mayflower, and then the other half came on a sardine boat somewhere in the 19-teens and 1920s. And I've never met more patriotic people than my Italian ancestors. They wore American flag pins. They waved the American flag. They would never let it touch the ground. They made sure to learn English. They did their damnedest to learn English, as well they should. That's expected of them because they're being welcomed in to the country. It's, America's not just some abstraction. It's a real place. And it requires real acts of charity to allow immigrants to come in. Where David goes wrong is in the ideology of it all, just focusing so much on ideology. He writes, the blessings of liberty accrue to all Americans. What did we do to earn our liberty? As though America were just this one word, liberty, this totally abstract concept that means many things to many different people. Many things around the world. It it means one thing in an American context. It means a very different thing, let's say, in a French context. Pun intended, but I mean the country, France. means another thing in a Japanese context. America is more than just some ideological intuition or definition of liberty. It's our institutions. It's our history. It's our material blessings. We're the most materially prosperous country in the history of the world. It's our substantial religious zeal. Even now, as religion is fading away from America, we're still more religious than the rest of the Western world by a long shot. It's our common bonds to each other. It's our symbols. It's the American flag. Most of all, it's our people. The country is our people, more than geography, more than buildings, more than even our legal documents. The country is our people. We'll explain what this means for our politics, for the suicide squad. Then we'll get to a little gender ideology. Men keep beating women in women's sports. We'll get to Joe Biden. We'll get to so much more, but you've got to go to dailywire.com. By the way, be sure to tune in tomorrow, July 17th at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern for our latest episode of Daily Wire Backstage. Join me, Ben Shapiro, Andrew Clavin, and the Daily Wire God King, Jeremy Boring, as we drink delicious whiskey, smoke lovely stogies, and chop up the latest insanity in pop culture and politics insights and laughs will abound. That is tomorrow, 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern for the best round table talk in politics. Go to dailywire.com. We got a lot more coming up. We'll be right back. The country is more than geography. It's more than buildings. It's more even than legal documents. It's the people. And here's how I can prove that. Because you can have the geography, you can have the buildings even, and you can have the legal documents. And if you have no people, you have no country. Actually, there are plenty of ancient civilizations where we still have most of their buildings. We have their geography, obviously, and we have their legal documents. But there's no people, and so the civilization is gone. They no longer exist. Here's another example. We just celebrated the 4th of July. 
How did you celebrate the 4th of July? Did you go into your innermost room and sit with the lights off and close your eyes and just meditate on some totally abstracted concept of liberty? That's how you celebrated, right? No, it doesn't sound like a fun 4th of July. Probably you went to the fireworks and you ate hot dogs and hamburgers and you watched baseball, America's national pastime, and you had a beer, you drank some American beer, and you watched tanks. Actual real tanks parade down our actual real national mall in our actual real national capital, which exists somewhere. We're a real country. We're very welcoming to people from other countries. That is an act of charity. And the people who come here, Ilhan Omar, chief among them, should respond to that charity with gratitude. She should express that gratitude through a love of country, not denigrating the country, not talking about how awful the country is, not laughing and giggling about Al-Qaeda, not comparing the United States to terrorist organizations, not like AOC comparing the United States to Nazi Germany. They should love the country. And we shouldn't welcome people here who don't love the country. There's nothing un-American about saying that. That's my rant is over on that topic. I've had enough of the squad. Right now, we should talk about things that really matter, not the integrity of our country or our political institutions, the more important topics like women's sports. There's a story out of New Zealand, a gender-confused man there took home multiple gold medals in women's weightlifting at the 2019 Pacific Games in Samoa. This is Laurel Hubbard, formerly Gavin Hubbard, who won two gold medals and a silver three heavyweight categories, this guy somehow managed to win them all. I wonder why. Because he's a man. Obviously, this is not the first time we've heard about this. Madeline Kearns, actually another National Review writer, was writing in the, uh, the Wall Street Journal over the weekend and had a piece out on gender-confused men beating out female high school athletes at track meets. Very good piece. I recommend checking it out. So I think I tweeted this out, and then this weirdo named Jack Turbin who's a freelance writer for the New York Times, and he's a child psychiatry resident from Harvard Medical School, tells you everything you need to know about Harvard Medical School, called Maddie's piece on transgender athletes bigoted. That's what the left is saying now. The left is now saying that if you don't let men beat women in sports, you're a bigot. And there's a, a real irony here in the whole gender ideology movement is, is you have a woman writing in the Wall Street Journal about how we should preserve women's sports, and then you have a man coming in and saying that it's bigoted to preserve women's sports, that men should be allowed to beat women. That's what it comes down to. And this is what the left does. The left goes and says that if you defend women's locker rooms, women's bathrooms, women's sports, any separate place for women to have on their own, all their own, to compete and do whatever they want, if you defend that, you're a bigot. And the right makes a mistake because we don't refer to the people who say that as misogynists, which is what they are. He sent out the tweet, bigoted writer in the Wall Street Journal defends women's sports. We should say misogynist writer in the New York Times opposes women's sports. I, I pointed out to this guy how stupid his opinion was, and he had no argument. So what he did is he accused me of being obsessed with women's sports. I can assure you, I have never watched a single women's sporting event from start to finish in my entire life. I don't watch a whole lot of sporting events anyway, and I certainly don't watch women's sporting events like the WNBA or something. Just not my cup of tea. I don't know. Everybody has their thing. That's not mine. But this is what the culture warrior left always does. 
they always gaslight us on this. They radically redefine some very basic aspect of our culture. They radically redefine sports. They radically redefine gender. They radically redefine bathrooms. They radically redefine marriage. And then some of us object to that. We say, yeah, you know, maybe we shouldn't just completely redefine sex. And they say, you're obsessed. You're totally obsessing over it. No, we're, we're not obsessing over anything. The left is the aggressor in the culture wars. We're the ones saying, hmm, maybe your ideas are a little crazy and weird. Maybe we shouldn't buy into them. And they say, you're obsessing. When they say that, that's how you know that you're, you're getting under their skin. Because the way that the left proceeds to dominate the culture is slowly and steadily, and they, they almost pretend that they're not doing it. I mean, now we are told, if you believe in the definition of marriage that President Barack Obama held as late as 2012, you're a bigot. That was seven years ago. That was very recently. Now we're told, if you believe that a man is not a woman, you are a bigot. You are not welcome into polite society. This was an opinion that was held by everybody from the beginning of time until like five seconds ago. And now if you tweet out men are not women, you can be banned from Twitter. Twitter has said that. They can permanently suspend you for it. That's how fast they move. And if you come out and you say, gosh, maybe we should think about this, guys. Maybe, maybe every civilization for all of human history everywhere was onto something when they said that men and women are different. Maybe every origin story of our species which begins with the sexual difference between men and women. Maybe, I don't know, maybe they weren't just completely crazy. They say, you're obsessed. Give it up. Stop it. It's not a big deal. It's, that's what they, they say. It's not a big deal. Well, if it's not a big deal, let women have their own sports. If it's not, a, you're right. I don't think it's a big deal to let women have their own sports. You on the left, you're the ones making this a big deal. So fine, let them have their own sports, let them have their own locker rooms, let them have their own bathrooms, back off, women exist, get over it, weirdos. But they won't do that. They, they can't back off because this is part of the aggression of the culture wars. This is part of the, I mean, it's an irony because of all people, I'm the one now defending women's sports, but I guess politics makes strange bedfellows. And you are going to see within the next few years, women's sports will not be permitted to exist. This will make it all the way up to the Olympics. You're, you're already seeing that happen now. And the question is, when will feminists, when will women generally, when will the fairer sex rise up and say, no, stop it, you weirdo men who write in the New York Times and tell us that we're not allowed to have our own sports. Stop it. You don't get to do that. It is misogyny. It's a word that I don't use very often, but that's the only way to describe it. Speaking of totally old and antiquated ideas like the difference between men and women, let's talk about that old and antiquated presidential campaign run by Joe Biden, the sometime front runner. I guess he's still the front runner, but he seems to be going nowhere fast. So he was recently asked what his health care plan would be. I kid you not, the gaffe machine, the greatest gaffer in the history of American politics comes out and tells the people that his health care plan is that if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. Where have we heard that before? Here he is. How many of you have, when you were working, liked your, and you may still be working, many of you, how many of you like your employer-based health care? Did you think it was adequate? Now, if I come along and say, finish, you can't have it anymore. Well, that's what Medicare for All does. You cannot have it, period. 
number one. There's a hiatus spot in between, by the way, how long it's going to take. So I leave people the option. If you like your health care plan, not your employer-based plan, you can keep it. If, in fact, you have private insurance, you can keep it. Oh, yeah? Is that right? What was it that a very wise man once said? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me, uh, 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 the point is you're not going to fool me again. I think that was George W. Bush who said that, and he was absolutely right. Joe Biden, Joe Biden has been dreaming about being president since, I think, the 1820s. He's been a part of American public life since the 1970s. He's run for president now almost continuously since 1988. Got kicked out in 88, ran again in 2008. Got picked to be vice president because Obama hated Hillary so much. Now he's running again. And in all of that time, the best that he could come up with for his health care plan is to repeat the politifact lie of the year that Barack Obama said cost Obama and the Democrats a thousand seats across the country. The lie that under left-wing health care, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. Does he think people forgot? Maybe Joe Biden just forgot, but we can remind him. That's not how it works. If you like your doctor, you don't get to keep your doctor under government health care. Because the government has all the power. Makes perfect sense. Ronald Reagan made it clear. The government that is big enough to give you everything you want is big enough to take away everything that you've got. Let me ask you something. Why do you think these left-wingers in government are so eager to give everything away for free, to give you free health care, quote-unquote, to give you free money in a straight check, quote-unquote, to give you free housing, to give you free education, to give you free student loan payments? Do you really think it's just out of the goodness of their own heart? Do you really think they're such charitable, wonderful people? They're not. They don't give any money to charity. I mean, there, study after study shows that the left, and the, particularly the elected left, gives a lot less to charity than conservatives do. The reason that they keep trying to quote unquote give everything away for free is because that money equals dependency and that dependency is power. They don't care about your health care plan. Everybody in America can access health care. Nobody gets turned away at the hospital. We have by far the greatest health care system in the world. Whenever anyone wants a complicated surgery or any high quality health care, wherever they are on earth, they come to the United States. They don't care about the quality of your health care. They want to control your health care choices. And that's what happens. He who pays the piper calls the tune. Now, what this means politically for 2020 is that Joe Biden has nothing. I mean, you'd think this guy could come. He spent the last several years planning his run for president, and he's got nothing. He can just, he can only rehash the old failed policies of 10 years ago. The Democrats broadly can't offer anything other than free this and free that. They, you, you haven't really heard them articulate any serious policy proposal, anything new other than socialism, which is the oldest political ideology of any that are being promoted right now. Just more of the same old stuff. And this is why they have to just use the invective. This is why they have to insult people and call everyone racist and everyone sexist and everyone's a bigot. They have to do that because they don't have anything of substance to say. And this is now swung back around on poor old Joe Biden. I, I just see him falling. We've long predicted that Joe Biden's best day would be his, his first day. He just keeps kind of slowly falling down the poles. Doesn't seem like he's got a lot of oomph, a lot of stamina, nothing really to, to offer to the American people. And it looks like 
some of these squad-supported young guns who are running for president are, are more likely to take it away from him. Which brings us to all of this race baiting, all of this anti-American rhetoric brings us to the stupidest column that I've read on the internet today. I mean, it, every day it changes. This one in the Washington Post from Al Green, unfortunately not the wonderful singer, but the less than wonderful congressman. He writes about his plan to save America from our original sin. Very frequently you'll hear slavery referred to as the original sin of America. And he has a convenient strategy to overcome our original sin. Impeach Trump. That'll, that'll get us past it, right? Won't it? This is what he writes, quote, this bigotry, this hate, this homophobia, Islamophobia, xenophobia is a part of our original sin. I'm just going to stop there for a second. Homophobia is a part of the original sin. Islamophobia is a part of our, I thought original sin was slavery. Something tells me if you polled every single person in the 18th century about what they thought of homosexuality, I, I bet they'd all be homophobes, okay? If you ask them what they thought about Islam, I, I think they'd all be Islamophobes, quote unquote. Actually, our, our earliest wars were with Muslim pirates because they were uh, enslaving all of our sailors. So I, 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 I'm a little skeptical of this to begin with. Because they just add phobia, 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 and they, they, they add it all into their intersectional hierarchy of oppression. Green goes on, quote, we in the Congress of the United States of America have an opportunity to do something about the original sin. We can do so by simply allowing these articles of impeachment that I will file and bring to the floor of the House of Representatives this month to be debated and voted upon. This is really cynical and disgusting stuff from Al Green, because what he's saying is, hey, Hey, everyone, you should feel really guilty about something that happened hundreds of years ago. And the only way that you can overcome that, the only way that you can prove that you're anti-slavery is giving me what I want politically. How disgusting, how cynical. He goes on, quote, this is our opportunity and I beg that we would take advantage of it and let history know that when we had a chance to do something about the original sin of the United States of America, the sin which caused us to have a civil war, the sin which took Dr. King's life, the sin which took Abraham Lincoln's life. When we had an opportunity to do something about the original sin, we took the opportunity and we did, which was the most honorable thing to do, and that was to impeach the, this president. I won't even get into the countless grammatical and punctuation errors in this very stupid column, but I will point out his incoherence. We need to do something to overcome the original sin. The original sin is slavery. We need to do something to overcome the original sin which caused us to have a civil war. Hmm. Is it not possible that the civil war was the United States doing about our, something about our original sin? Don't you think that the civil war did more to end slavery in America than impeaching Donald Trump 150 years after slavery was abolished would do to end slavery in America? Something tells me it would. Don't you think that the murder of Abraham Lincoln is something that might atone or try to, to make good for the, that original sin of slavery. Don't you think all of the civil rights legislation that has been passed, all of the social maturity that has occurred, all of the racial reconciliation that we've seen in the United States, don't you think any of that might do something to atone for the original sin? No, all of that was nothing. Bloody civil war, three quarters of a million Americans dead. No, that meant nothing. What we really need to do is impeach Donald Trump, and then we'll have atoned for the original sin of slavery, right? 
mm, something tells me that's not going to be good enough either. Something tells me Al Green is going to, is whatever, whatever law he wants passed next, then that's going to be the thing that atones for the original sin of slavery. This whole category, the original sin, I find a little bit problematic. Obviously, this is a great, egregious moral error that was part of the foundation of this country. There were other moral errors as well. Do we not think that some of the harsh dealings with the Native Americans, is that not the original sin? Is that not part? Maybe that's part of the original sin. Do we not think that some misguided wars might be part of the original sin? That some misguided arrangements with foreign countries might be part of the original sin, that some of our, maybe the Articles of Confederation, I don't know, that almost nearly collapsed the country before we got our constitution. Was that not part of the original sin? What, what about the 19th century? What about the 20th century? What, what about it? When you look at the original sin of America, you realize it's much more complicated than just one institution or one thing. You, you see that sin pervades not just the founding of the country, but, but the whole country. Not just the whole country, but the whole world. We live in a fallen world where there is sin. And, and you can never atone for sin. This is what Christianity is, is unbought grace, redemption from a savior. And short of a savior, short of, uh, of God himself becoming incarnate, redeeming the world, the greatest story ever told. Short of that, the way that we deal in a world of sin is with grace. You know, the Lord's prayer says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's a world of grace. We have two options nationally. We can either accept grace, offer grace to one another, not merely condemn some past historical figures, but recognize that we ourselves are committing injustices and our descendants will commit injustices. And history will look on us pretty, pretty poorly. We kill a million babies a year. That's just one example. Either we can accept grace, work as best we can to improve our lot and our country and our, our moral behavior and offer that grace to one another. We can either do that or we can commit national suicide. We can hate our country, hate ourselves, hate our countrymen, hate our ideals, try to do everything we can to discourage assimilation, bring in anyone else to the country, anyone but us because of how awful we are, fall away from our role in the world, stop believing in our foundational principles, our ideas, the ideas that we've developed over time, abandon our institutions, abandon our countrymen, despise our country. Those are the two options, grace or national suicide. We've got a national suicide squad on one side. We'll see who wins out. A lot more to get to, but we'll do it tomorrow. Get your mailbag questions in for Thursday. In the meantime, I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. See you tomorrow. The Michael Knowles Show is produced by Rebecca Dobkowitz and directed by Mike Joyner. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover, and our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Danny D'Amico. Audio is mixed by Dylan Case. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Olvera. And our production assistant is Nick Sheehan. The Michael Knowles Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019.
Hey everyone, it's Andrew Clavin, host of The Andrew Clavin Show. In politics, as in poker, you can only play the cards you're dealt, and we have been dealt the race card. The left has transformed racism into a meaningless political Trump, and Trump has trumped them back. Yesterday was like the Texas Hold'em World Race Card Championship. Can anybody win this game? We'll find out on The Andrew Clavin Show.